Will you join me as we pray? Our great God and Father, we come to you and marvel that you have been so good to us. You are very great, and for us to approach you with godly fear and humble confidence is the right thing. And so I ask that you would help us now to uh, love you as we should, remind us in your word here that your goodness is your glory, and let us let us be pleasing to you and keep any pleasurable or painful experience from sidetracking and injuring the prosperity of our souls. Father, would you build our faith now so that our souls might uh, live an abundant life. And we'll thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to start today a little bit differently than I have started before. And, you know, we're having a little bit of a hard time getting, I don't know, people to come to church here. So uh, I decided I want to give away $20 to the first person who will drop their name and uh, type uh, $20 in the chat. So if you'll do that, we've got $20 for you. And so... Here you go, $20, just like that. In fact, I'll, I, even have, I, I even have two that I can give you, $20 and $20. Maybe the first two can have these. Bet you'll love that. Are not all $20 the same? Isn't a $20 bill a $20 bill? Or are there some things that make some $20 bills worth more than other $20 bills. Some are genuine, and some clearly are not genuine. So imagine this, if a man says, I have a $20 bill, is that good enough? <laughs> See, that's James' question here. James' question is, if a man says he has faith, isn't that enough? I'm going to suggest to you, though, that the dangers of passing off a fake bill uh, in place of a real bill are not near as great as the dangers of passing off a, a false faith for a genuine faith. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning is what it's going to mean to have a genuine faith. How can you tell if you've got that or not? So let's read what James says about faith. I'm going to begin reading in uh, chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is it? So also... Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the de demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, 
that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. He was called a friend of God. You see that a person is not justified, or excuse me, you see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So here's the central idea of this passage. Very simply, genuine faith must work. Or to say it a different way, uh, borrow Pastor Travis, he said, faith that doesn't work doesn't work. Or maybe ask the question, does faith that doesn't help someone else really help you? The definition James is using of faith is a little bit fluid here. And that's why we struggle with it. He talks about faith without works as though that was real faith. And then he talks about faith that works, uh, about faith that works and then justifies. So I want to define faith here as living out the certainty that God is real. Faith is responding to God's character and his covenant, his covenant faithfulness with a faithfulness of your own. It is responding to God's character and covenant faithfulness with the faithfulness of your own. So James states the problem here. I think it's part of his diagnosis of what's going on in these churches when he gives a hypothetical uh, situation. He says, what good is it, verse 14, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? What good is it? My brothers, if a person says he has a $20 bill, is that $20 bill good? Can that faith save him? Well, faith that doesn't work doesn't work. Resident in this first question, we see that the claim of faith has nothing to do with its actual possession. We find the need for faith to be more than simple affirmation of doctrine or assent to facts. Something is going on with this question that sets us up for the discussion that's about to follow. The big question then is, what is saving faith like? How is genuine faith different from false faith or counterfeit faith? And then the follow-up question that all of us will internally have to ask is, do I have that? And so it's to that first question that James turns now. And he does it with a hypothetical example. It's so fun because this section is full of all of these hypothetical uh, examples. And you just think, well, you know, uh, what if somebody said they have faith? Just, I'm asking for a friend, right? What if someone has a brother or sister poorly clothed and lacking in daily friend? I'm asking for a friend. But that friend says, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them what they need. 
What good is that? That's really what we're after. This is not mere charity, as though you, you pass a panhandler at a stoplight. This is a brother or sister. What James is talking about is about participation in the community of faith. Are you doing your part? Are you loving other people? Are you together with them in their affliction? This is a check on uh, that great commandment, love your neighbors yourself. This is a check on do you love one another? Like John says in his first letter, he says, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So there in 1 John chapter 3, John uses exactly the same illustration that James does of somebody being in need and us withholding what we have to help them. And, he, and John says that you can't expect to have eternal life. You can't expect that God is dwelling within you if you don't love people. So you can think about it this way. Your love, namely the change of your affections and your priorities, are a result of a genuine faith in the gospel. Your love, your change of affections and priorities, is a result of the genuine faith in the gospel. That's what John says. He talked about the love that, that, that Christ has for us. Believing that changes your affections and priorities toward other people. That's what James is after here. What good is that? And then he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so he gives us this hint here that faith by itself is not what will save. You'll notice He's using the word faith in two different ways. Faith by itself, or faith alone, in verse 24, indicates the kind of faith that we normally think about when we think of faith. Do I agree with something? Do I assent to a doctrine? Have I come to understand and comprehend a truth? Do I believe it? That's how we normally use it. And so James talks about that, but he always qualifies it as faith that's alone or faith that doesn't work or faith that is without works. He does that because that's the way people normally use it, even though it's wrong and incomplete. And I'm afraid that many of us were inoculated against real faith by the counterfeit. We were told all we had to do was believe that Jesus died for our sins and we'd go to heaven and we'd be fine. 
Nothing about changing, nothing about repentance, nothing about what needed to happen in our lives tomorrow. Just sign the insurance policy on the dotted line and you're good to go. That, I'm afraid, is how we've come to think of faith. But the New Testament sees faith as a much more complete concept than that. In the introduction to Romans, uh, we find the Apostle Paul describes himself and he says that he received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. And again, he says in Galatians 5, 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, only faith working through love. So that's what faith is. Faith is faith that works. Faith is faith that brings about the obedience of faith. It's not merely agreeing with something that somebody told you. And so that brings us then to James' full-fledged discussion of the nature of faith. In verse 18, he begins again with a hypothetical situation, or you might say a fake dialogue to get the discussion restarted. He says, but someone will say, suppose someone says, you have faith, I have works. You show me your faith apart from your works, I'll show you my faith by my works. And so, how are you going to see faith? So that's essentially what he's getting at here. How are you going to see it? You're not going to see it because somebody closes their eyes and wrinkles their forehead and says, I've got faith. You're going to see faith because it transforms that person in issues in action that is distinguished from someone who doesn't believe. Then James really makes us feel bad, right? He says, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. He says, it is possible to be in a church and have demonic faith because the demons are orthodox. The central test, you might say, for good theology begins with monotheism in the unity of God. God is one, and the demons get that. They get it, and it shakes them down to their bones. They shudder. They don't respond in faithfulness to the character and covenant faithfulness of God, but they do understand his character. They know it, they assent to it, they see it and perceive it. They have a sense of who they're dealing with, but they don't respond with faithfulness. And so, verse 20 brings us then to the question, and I love how he just pushes this question over and over. Do you want to be shown, oh, you foolish person that faith apart from works is useless? Do you want to be shown you empty, literally empty person that faith apart from works is useless? Don't you know that your $20 bill is useless? Don't you know? Don't you know that it's empty of value? Your soul is empty? 
Your faith is empty. It's useless. And so he says, do you want to be shown? Let me show you. And he goes to some examples. He goes to Abraham, first of all. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, I want you to notice the timing on this. If you were to thumb back to Genesis and uh, you were to get this really clear, you would recognize that it was in Genesis 15, verse 6, that God declares Abraham righteous. And then you would notice that he offers Isaac on the altar in Genesis 22. And so how does Genesis 22 prove to be the justification for the faith that Abraham had? What's going on? Well, I, I think that what James is getting at is the, the idea that in Genesis 22, Abraham was all in. Abraham was full, pedal to the metal. He belonged to God. He loved God. And he was responding in faithfulness to God. He returned to God, the ultimate faithful expression in response to God's character and covenant faithfulness. I think he first experienced that covenant faithfulness in chapter 12 when, <laughs> when God made the Abrahamic covenant with him. And it took time before Abraham was completely faithful. But it was in chapter 22 that his faith really came to fruition. And so James' argument, then, is that faith active along with his works, verse 22, uh, his faith was active along with his works, and his faith was completed or made perfect by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. I love it that the scripture was fulfilled. The scripture from Genesis 15 was fulfilled in Genesis 22. Namely, he was counted righteous and then he acted righteously. He was counted righteous and then he demonstrated his faith. And the only time in scripture here he was called a friend of God. His action with Isaac fulfilled God's assertion that Abraham was counted righteous. Because he acted righteously, he believed. Abraham was a friend of God, and James is setting up for us a discussion in chapter 4 about what it means to be a friend of God or a friend of the world, as the case may be. We're going to have to decide. Are we going to respond to God's character and covenant faithfulness with faithfulness of our own? Or are we going to turn and try and become a friend of the world? Well, that's coming in chapter 4. But here, he summarizes again, and he just comes back to summary statements all the time. You see a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. It was Abraham's works that really justified his faith. And then he says, hey, 
Okay? Abraham, Abraham was a patriarch. Abraham was amazing. We need to see if this really works for normal people, right? And so he takes the example of Rahab. Verse 25, in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? He goes from the patriarch to the prostitute. Interesting. Rahab's story is in Joshua chapter 2, and it does really help us understand what this faith looks like. We have really no backstory on her. We don't know if she was, uh, uh, I mean, he calls her a prostitute, but we don't have any idea if there was any spiritual wherewithal in her life uh, for very long or anything. But in Joshua 2, verse 9, Rahab speaks to the spies, and this is what she says. She says, I know Yahweh has given you the land. So here is this pagan woman, she's not a Jew, says, I know Yahweh has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen on us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh your God, he is God in heaven, above and on earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by Yahweh, that as I've dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. What do you notice there? You notice Rahab heard. All the people heard most of them didn't do anything about it. But Rahab heard, and she knew that Yahweh was going to give them the land. She heard, and she knew, and then, because of what she heard and what she knew, she could not help but do something about it. She could not help but uh, hide the spies and send them out another way and help God's purposes in the world along. I think that is a great picture of faith, isn't it? That she heard and she knew, and then she moved uh, to work with God in his purposes. So it's interesting. James says Abraham had faith, Rahab had faith. Why Abraham and Rahab? I think there are two uh, reasons here. Uh, one is that both Abraham and Rahab are examples of being saved by faith and hospitality. Abraham took in visitors, and so did Rahab. Uh, you'll notice if you read through Genesis that Abraham uh, 
had visitors come to his tent. He, he made him a meal. They talked about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He had a long conversation there. But Abraham took the visitors in, so did Rahab. And they took care of them and sent them out um, another way. That is the opposite of the problem in verses 14 through 16 here in James. The problem there is that those people weren't doing anything for those who had need. It's the refusal of the needs of other people that was the problem. I think that, though, is a secondary reason. The main reason is to signal to all of us that faith works the same way whether you're a patriarch or a prostitute. They are two very different people with different backgrounds, statuses, different moral integrity, but both find that a faithful response to God's character and covenant faithfulness was required, and it was enough to justify them. Both Abraham and Rahab were justified by their faith, it says. And I don't think he has in mind, James has in mind, the forensic justification that we get in the Apostle Paul and his doctrine of salvation. Rather, I think you can uh, think of it this way, that the ends justify the means. They were justified because in the end they believed. Or think about it this way. We just uh, saw the World Series. Um, tip of the hat to those of you who are Dodgers fans. But it's like a baseball manager who changes pitchers. It's the fourth inning, and the other team managed to get a runner on, and he calls the bullpen and changes pitchers. Now, he may have seen something. He might have been worried about that. He'd watched that pitcher all season. Now, if the next batter hits a home run, everyone's going to think the manager is ridiculous. He's the biggest fool that ever tried to manage a ball club. But if, on the other hand, the reliever strikes out the sides and they go on to win uh, the game, we would say, yeah, he was justified in making that substitution. He was proved right in the end. And that, I think, is what Rahab and Abraham offer us is that their faith proves them right in the end. And I want to suggest to you that yours will too. If you have a faithful response to God's character and covenant faithfulness, you too will find that such a faith will save you. You too will be justified in the end. In that great day when you, when you speak and act as the one who will be judged by the perfect law of liberty, as he just wrote uh, a few verses earlier, you will recognize then that acting in faithfulness toward God, a full-hearted response of faith, will be exactly what will save you in the end. And this brings us then to his conclusion. He says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. 
And he, he picks up the idea that faith is dead. He had that earlier in verse 17 as well. And so he, he starts off with these hypothetical situations and brings them to a focus to say, you can have living faith, genuine faith, or you can have dead and counterfeit faith. And there is this focus that he brings to it so that all of us have to come to grips with what kind of faith do I have? Talks about the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. I mean, you can think of this in so many um, different avenues of life. I believe that seatbelts save lives. And that doesn't matter, does it? Unless when I step in, I pull the seatbelt over and I buckle it in. Which one of those aspects of faith is good? I believe that smoking is bad for my health. But do I smoke? See, it doesn't really matter what you believe or how you've been convinced intellectually of anything. It matters if what you uh, understand intellectually or see with uh, your eyes, if that changes what you do. Because faith, which I think is a faithful response to God's character and his covenant faithfulness, it changes your affections and it changes your will. And it's your your affections and your will that change your action and your works. Just like the spirit animates the body, so faith animates action. I hope you can see that this is an important question. In fact, so important that you could say everything hangs on it. Are you simply giving God a nod? Are you religious when it's convenient? Or are you all in with a faithful response to God's character and his covenant faithfulness? In other words, do you have faith? The grave danger is that some of you may have a counterfeit faith like the readers that James has in mind. I mean, you can go on like you are for sure, but your soul is in danger. Your religion is like the religion of the demon. You get it up here, you know it's true, but it hasn't really affected anything. You want the genuine thing, but really all you have is this. And I just want to suggest to you that it'd be good to take a moment and ask yourself some important questions. Are there actions in your life 
that you can't explain apart from God's work in you. That's a fancy way of asking, has your faith produced work? Are you pursuing ministry opportunities in the lives of other people, like widows or orphans or the poor who come to your gathering? Which is another way of asking, has faith produced love in you? Or are you hanging back waiting for someone to be nice to you? Are you hoping to be on the receiving end of somebody's kindness? Or has your faith transformed you? Before you speak, are you bridling your tongue? Or do you just regret it after you say something? Has your faith brought about a change of heart so that when your heart speaks, when your mouth speaks, it's from the abundance of your heart? Are you acting in a way that includes people you don't know that well instead of playing favorites? Do you find yourself actively caring for people who are not like you? Is your faith moving you to action? Basically, I hope you'll have the conversation that James, uh, that James has here in this text. See, James works all around this so that we have to say, do I have faith that makes me live, act, and behave differently? Am I responding faithfully to God? Knowing his character, knowing his covenant faithfulness, am I embracing him? Am I all in or am I just hanging back, being religious when it's convenient. Do I have a faith that is without works, a faith that is by itself, that hangs limp, or do I have a faith that changes my affections and my actions? May God help us have the genuine thing. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I just want to stop and just ask you for your grace. Father, I am sure that there are people who hear this message and are unsure whether they have genuine faith unsure whether what they affirm has really reached down deep and changed their lives. So, Father, I ask that you would be so kind to all of us, myself included, to cause me, cause us to believe you in such a way that we cannot help but obey that we cannot help but love other people, that we cannot help but have our affections and our will transformed so that we are completely yours. 
make us all in like Abraham and like Rahab. Make us act on what we say we believe. And we'll thank you because that would be a gracious, loving act. Amen.